politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen yearning to be free and fight for liberty anew to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for the end of the week. We love Fridays, July 16th. And we have a really very special show today. We're going to have a victim of crime who lost her husband to homicide, shafted by our broken justice system. When you talk about securing the blessings of liberty, the purpose of a government, why we have it in the first place, not for farm subsidies, not to run commerce, not to run our lives, first and foremost is to protect us from bad people so that we don't have a dog-eat-dog world where you know the strongest and most evil and violent succeeds. But instead, that's the one thing our government won't do. I cannot tell you the stories I've run across today with rapists and murderers being let out. It's just crazy, crazy. Follow my Twitter feed, at RMConservative. I'll have a lot of that today. Um, there's also a tremendous amount of COVID stuff going on. Um, the more we see, see what's going on, the Israeli data, 81% of the new infections last week were people that already had the clot shot. Um, remdesivir, I have a big article on that. University of Iowa study shows it's a complete bust. The only government treatment for COVID, $3,000 a pop. And in fact, it, it turns out it correlates with a longer hospital stay. And they refuse to update their treatment protocols when there's so much there. So I have an article packed with that. Again, we'll touch on that a little bit more next week. Um, and look, if we don't watch out, I'm telling you, they're going to promote the fear and panic, and they're going to they're going to bring back the masks. They're going to bring this all back, and they're going to keep this cycle going. So, folks, I need you to support this show to get out the truth. This is information warfare, which is why some of you, you know, you don't have time to sit down special to listen to a podcast, but some of you like to listen as you're traveling, as you're exercising, as you're on the treadmill. So you might want to pick up a pair of Raycon earbuds, wireless earbuds. Um, I use Raycon. They fit perfectly in the ear. Uh, Very crisp sound, powerful beats when you're listening to music. Uh, It's really a premium uh, brand at at an affordable price. They look great, feel even better, come in a range of cool colors with customized gel tips included for a comfortable in-ear fit. Raycons are built to go wherever you go with quick, seamless Bluetooth pairing and a compact changing case. Raycons offering 15% of all their products for my listeners. Here's what you got to do. Go to buyraycon.com slash conservative. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash conservative. Get 15% off. Buy a pair. Buy a spare for a friend. 15% off. Buyraycon.com slash conservative. Buyraycon.com slash conservative. Now, folks, one of the themes we've been touching on the last number of years is how shockingly with rising crime resulting from compassionate policies that are geared solely towards criminals. We have Kim Kardashian and everyone, every master of the universe. If you Google these organizations, for every one of me, there's a thousand on the other side advocating on behalf of every violent criminal, every person on death row, every person serving life without parole, every layer of the system to downgrade sentencing, downgrade bail, downgrade convictions, make it harder to land a conviction. Nobody focuses on victims. It's unbelievable. I I got into really interest in public policy as a kid in the early 90s when I saw this movement to fight back on crime, and people were really concerned about it, and there were tons of organizations. Now it's like a lonely fight, and unfortunately, there's more victims than ever. And as I've mentioned before, this is not just a problem in New York and California. It's more severe in a couple of ways, but the broad problem that even when it comes to the most dangerous people, even in red states, a large percentage of them are not being caught, are not being convicted commensurate with the level of crime they've committed. They are not being locked up 
commensurate to their threat level or what justice should demand. That is true and frankly was true even during the times of the murder involving the situation of our next guest in 2009, which was kind of the peak of incarceration in America. That was the lock them all up era. But you know what? Even then, even in red states, it hasn't been that tough at all on most people. You know, in Tennessee, the jail population has declined 25% just from last year. The state prison population declined a similar ratio, 25.2%. Murder is up in Nashville. Last year, they set a record of 114 murders. Outpaced this year in Nashville, their murder clearance rate, meaning this is where they even just get an arrest, much less a solid conviction and a life sentence or death penalty, 45% compared to 60% as recently as 2018. So murders are going up, clearance is going down. Memphis has, of course, set another record, 330 homicides. And even in Knox and Anderson counties, homicide is up between the two of them, 71%. So this is no longer just a Chicago-Baltimore problem. This is happening everywhere. With us next is a very special guest, Nikki Gozer. She's the executive director of the Crime Prevention Research Center, those of you who are not familiar with the name, I'm sure you are with John Lott. That is his outlet, the legendary Second Amendment advocate. She's the author of a book, Stalked and Defenseless, How Gun Control Helped My Stalker Murder My Husband in Front of Me. And basically, just to go over real briefly before we bring on Nikki, uh, she was a singer in Nashville and had these karaoke uh, singing events in inside and outside of Nashville where it's very popular and this guy started latching on to her, messaging her. Um, stalking is a big problem in America. Um, it was someone she never knew, had no idea who he was, but you know, started acting very creepy, very inappropriate, not to the point where she really thought her life was in danger. And then one day in 2009, he shows up at the bar where she is performing, and she gets scared, kind of runs into an office, and he comes in, pulls out a gun, and murders her husband of just uh, a year and four months in cold blood, shoots him in the head, comes up to him when he's on the floor, shoots him another six times. And there's 50 million witnesses. There's cameras that catch the entire thing. So in your mind, this would be first degree. This is like, this guy should get the death penalty if you understand the background. It was all planned, totally premeditated. There's even pretty solid evidence that he likely planned to kidnap Nikki, um, and she was the real target. You would think, hey, this is Tennessee, 2009. This guy's going to get the death penalty. Well, he was only even charged on second-degree murder, not first-degree. We're going to talk about that. Got 23 years, but is going to be out in 19 and a half. He's going to be out in just less than seven years, and over the period of the last number of years has still been sending Nikki these creepy love letters and he's going to be out. She had to fight for lifetime protective order, um, which is something we're going to get into, but he is going to be out. He is going to serve less time than Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis is going to serve. And they're just getting started there. They have more charges. They're loading up. There is something seriously wrong and I want to go through the life of a victim that no other politician seems to worry about, seems to attempt to change statutes on their behalf, like they're doing reform, so to speak, on behalf of criminals. You know, one of the things people don't realize is that in, in uh, chapter 4 of Genesis, if you look at the old Hebrew of the story between Cain and Abel, when God says to Cain, where is your brother? The blood of your brother is crying out. The actual Hebrew word is technically plural. It says bloods. It's not translated as such, but that is what the word is. And the tradition is that what it's hinting at in the first homicide that ever took place is that when you kill someone, you don't just kill that person, but all the future offspring. What touched me about this story is this, this occurred two months after I got married in February of 2009. And since then, I've been happily married. My wife is 
the best thing that ever happened to me over 12 years. I got four kids. Nikki is still not married, doesn't have a family, probably is not going to have one. And that never factors in. So I want you to consider that when you think, oh, 19 years, well, that sounds like a lot. No, it's not. No, it's not. Numbers 35, 33, and you shall not corrupt the land in which you live, for the blood corrupts the land, and the blood which is shed in the land cannot be atoned for except through the blood of the one who shed it. When are we going to get back to those principles that found our country? With us today is Nikki. Thanks so much, Nikki, for joining us today. Hey, Daniel. Thank you for having me on. All righty. Well, that was my filibuster. Now I'm turning it over to you. Um, there's so many things to explore here. There's the gun control aspect. There's the liberal prosecutor and judge in Nashville aspect. There's a uh, cold-blooded murder getting off on second degree. There's the good time credits. Um, I want to start more the here and now and kind of work it back where things stand now, what you've been working on. And let me know if I got any of your story wrong or kind of undersold it. Take as much time as you need. Sure. Um, well, I guess I should start out and kind of tell you what happened. Um, back in 2009, my husband, Ben, was murdered right in front of me by a man who was stalking me. This happened in a very busy restaurant in Nashville. It was a gun-free zone. Um, because of Tennessee state law at the time, I had to leave my legal permitted firearm that I normally carried for self-defense locked inside of my vehicle. Of course, I obeyed that gun control law and my stalker did not. He brought a gun into a gun-free zone, did not have a handgun carry permit. And, uh, I realized I was being stalked and I asked management um, to please help me. I let them know I'm being stalked. I described the man and I said, please, you know, I need you to remove him. And when they approached him and asked him to leave, he pulled a 45 and shot my husband uh, in the head. And he stood over Ben and continued to fire six more rounds into him. I will probably wonder for the rest of my life, if I could have prevented that, of course, I'll never know because I was denied a chance. I was stalked and defenseless. I have spent the past 12 years trying to educate people about the dangers of gun-free zones and how I believe they're actually a magnet for evil people to do evil yep. things. Um, they know that no one there can protect themselves. And what better place to go, you know, hunt someone down and, and be successful with harming them or killing them than a gun-free zone. Um, so, I, you know, I've just tried my best to, to help people understand, you know. I, I think the whole point was to try and make people feel safe. You know, we're going to not allow guns here. <laughs> and all it really does is it empowers evil people to do real harm, um, knowing that no one can stop them and it, it disarms and makes good people vulnerable. So he knew he was the only one with a gun there. And isn't it true that not only are you not allowed to carry or at least at the time in a restaurant, but this guy wasn't allowed to carry anywhere because he didn't have a license. Right. At the time you had to have a handgun carry permit to carry. Um, of course, now in Tennessee, we have uh, adopted constitutional carry, which uh, that took effect July 1st. But at that time, yeah, you had to have a handgun carry permit in order to carry out in public. And he did not have one. Um, he, I learned that he was not a, a prohibited person, though. Um, he actually had no criminal record in his history. He had no mental illness on record um you know I, part of the problem was that um you know there were signs um that this guy was a danger but no one in his life he was from i think he was from wyoming but he had moved all around the country apparently 
for different jobs. And the last job he had, I believe he was in Florida and he ended up losing his job because he couldn't get along with his coworkers. They were afraid of him. Uh, I guess the company asked that he have a mental evaluation and he just simply refused. And so they fired him and he just walked away out into the world, a ticking time bomb. And, you know, there were signs that his family knew, uh, coworkers knew, um, but nobody ever in his past ever stood up and took action to have him involuntarily committed. Um, when there were obvious signs for many years that he was demented and a danger, um, you know, they knew of the issues and nobody took real active measures. So, yeah, that, that gun-free zone, you know, here's the thing. Not everybody, not everybody is going to be prohibited. There's going to be people that fall through the cracks. And when that happens, good people have got to be able to protect themselves. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what, what strikes me in your case, so I want to divide this between the gun issue and the criminal justice deterrent slash punishment issue. Um, your case has all the trappings of everything I've been yelping about, except for one, in that this is a rare case of a guy who goes to straight cold blood and murder without any criminal record. So it couldn't have been avoided from the criminal justice system, but we'll see. We're going to have it at the back end where he's going to be let out. Um, but from the gun angle, do I have your story correct in that, you know, I, I, I actually saw the, the, the cameras and what seems to me about this story is that there's one thing if you have a wild guy kind of break in and just indiscriminately shoot so you're like well yeah you know even if you had a gun could you have gotten it off in time at least for the first few people maybe that he shoots but in this case it seems like based on it almost seems like he had a kidnapping rape kit in his trunk which the you know never really uh, was used to further convict him in a trial, but it seems like he was targeting you and trying to likely take you, and then he couldn't find you because you went away, so then he, he looked around, and he obviously then just shot your husband, um, which, you know, he was telling you, he was sending you messages, you need to divorce him, um, get away from him, so clearly he was very targeted, so do you have the belief that in this case in particular, again, you can never prove it 100%, but had you been carrying and not having to take your gun off and put it in your car, um, he likely wasn't trying to kill you. He's trying to take you, and you could have deterred that. Who knows? Who knows what his true intent was? I don't think he's ever going to be honest about that um, because he's a murderer. Um who knows? He could have tried to kidnap me. And if I didn't go along with what he wanted and then he may have killed me. I, I, I really don't know. Um, I, I don't guess I'll ever really know. All I can tell you is when the police searched my stalker's vehicle at the crime scene, they found two more guns, ammunition, a baseball bat, binoculars, gloves, rope, and a knife. And police made note that this man had a, a number of you know, things that, let's just say physical preparations that he made that very day. He purchased the shoulder holster, binoculars, and baseball bat that day. And my police friends have told me that they believe he intended to kidnap me that night with that kind of evidence. Um, unfortunately, he was convicted of only second-degree murder in a bench trial. So it was just a judge. There was no jury involved. The murderer gets to choose that. And um, he was sentenced to 23 years at 100% with no parole. But that was a lie. Victims are lied to every single day in criminal courts across the nation um, because there's no truth in sentencing. He's been allowed to earn the maximum in early release good behavior credits, um, which is three and a half years. And he's going to only serve 19 and a half years um, for murdering Ben and completely, you know, shattering my life. Um, and of course, Ben doesn't have a life anymore. You know, Ben doesn't get a second chance. 
but somehow this man is going to get a second chance. Um, and, and he's not going to be like 80. He's not going to be like 80 years old. He'll be about what? 60. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Early 60s. I mean, yeah. you know, nowadays that's not, that's not considered that old. A, he could have a lot of time on the clock, but B talk about the threat. So, um, you know, good time credits, I think the idea was if you have kind of like, I don't know, maybe lower level crimes that you need to be punished for, but you don't need justice for a murder. So look, if you really do good and, you know, maybe maybe we'll let you out. But now two things, A, it's applied to murderers and B, it's applied even when it's like an automatic. So this whole murder wasn't just a murder. It really the impetus was his obsession with you and that's why he murdered. That's why he's in prison. Describe what happened next over the ensuing, what, almost 10 years. Right. Um, so he has written me twisted love letters from prison for years. And um, what, he, what he's done is um, he sends these letters that are meant for me. I mean, clearly they are to me. They have my name on them. Um, he sends them to my former attorney's office. Um, this was an attorney that represented me in my wrongful death suit against my stalker, Ben's murderer. And, of course, those court documents are sent to the prisoner. Uh, and that's how he had my attorney's address. So he started sending these love letters. And the first two letters came before the murder trial, actually. And you can imagine, you know, I, I was devastated, shocked. Um, I let the prosecutor know before the trial occurred. I sent him copies of the letters and I said, look, there needs to be extra charges here. You know, apparently I need to get a restraining order. Um I need this to stop and nothing ever happened. Nothing was done to really help me. And I finally just gave up, you know, what do you do when nobody's going to help you? I mean, you're letting the prosecutor know. And, um, I think I'd also, uh, CC the detective and the victim witness coordinator as well. So anyway, I, I just told my attorney, look, I can't handle this. You know, it was the only way I could really protect myself mentally and emotionally. I just said, look, don't tell me anymore. I, mm. I, I don't want to know. Just don't. I can't handle it. Please just don't tell me. And my attorney honored that request from a very distraught widow. And he did not tell me for years. The letters kept coming, wow. but he did not tell me. And I'd been writing my book stalked and defenseless. And I got to the chapter where I started talking about those two letters and then it hit me and I thought, Oh, Oh my gosh. What if there are more, what if there are more letters? And then, you know, you're having this conversation with yourself. You're like, okay, Nick, you do not want to know. You don't want to know. Don't ask. You don't want to describe them a little bit. Like what, like, he doesn't even recognize, hey, I just killed your husband, but what does that even mean? Okay, so I have to explain this. Um, let me explain this part first because it will help it help maybe make sense. So his defense, he went for the insanity defense. It didn't work, thank goodness, because he knows right from wrong. Um, insane, I think people... People seem to think that insanity means you're nuts, you're crazy, you're literally insane. And that's not what the insanity defense is. That's not what insanity means. Insanity means you do not know right from wrong. That's it. That's what it means. Um, obviously, there's something wrong with him, but he was not found to be insane, not guilty by reason of insanity. So, uh, But they did talk a lot during the trial about uh, both mental health experts on the def for the defense and the prosecution. Both agreed that he has delusional disorder 
paranoia, and including a subtype of delusion known as erotomania. Would you like me to explain erotomania? Sure, real briefly, because briefly, I think, I mean, every murderer has something to, to some extent. Sure, sure. And it's not an excuse um, for doing really horrible, evil things. But, um, okay, so the core symptom of erotomania is an unshakable delusional belief that the object of their obsession is somehow a secret admirer, secretly in love with them, despite clear evidence against it. Um, and in some cases, the erotomaniac may believe that several people at once are secret admirers. And this delusion can be extreme to the point that even third parties within the target's life may be seriously harmed because that person with the delusion believes that they are somehow preventing access to that love object target. Does that make wow. sense? It's called triangulation. That, that makes a lot of sense. I'm glad you explained that. So, Nikki, let me bring this along. What, from what you're describing, if I were a DA, if I were a judge, if I were the parole, you know, TDOC, the, those that handle the prison, the agency that handles the prison for government in Tennessee, if I were anyone in anything in the whole criminal justice system, as I started out the show with before I brought you on, the, the social compact, why we have government at its core is to protect people, to secure the blessings of liberties so you don't have a dog-eat-dog world so the most powerful person can just kill people and whatever. So they all need to protect you because if I'm, I'm looking at this, and usually they use insanity to try to get the guy off, but if anything in this case, before we even get to the second-degree stuff, which I want to talk about, it's all the more case to leave him in prison because if I'm a betting man, everything you're describing, it sounds like you let him out and it's like, what do you think he's going to do? Where do you think he's going to go the minute he's let out? Um, and yet he exactly. gets three and a half years off? Yeah, it's terrifying. You know, erotomania... Sorry, I'm a psychology major, so I've studied mm. this stuff. And, I, of course, I've studied up on it more now. But um, So it usually begins with stalking and delusions that the victim's love is either real or somehow attainable, which can end in great resentment, anger, and depression when the erotomaniac cannot reach their delusional goal. And so... Consequently, sometimes erotomaniacs can react very badly to any perceived rejection by their victim, and it, they can turn dangerously vindictive and violent and out to destroy you know, whatever falsely perceived source of their mounting frustration, which this is terrifying for me because he's sending me these letters saying, I've loved you from the first moment I ever met you. Even if you move on and find someone new in your life, I'm always going to love you. Uh, and he just goes on and on. And, you know, it's just, it's terrifying for me because this is a continued fixation and obsession that has gone on for years. And if he's willing to do this from prison, what is he going to do when he's released? You know, many victims of stalking, uh, they worry about what their stalker may be capable of. I don't have to guess what he may be capable of. I know what he is capable of. He's already proven that. So, yeah, wow. this, is, this is absolutely terrifying for me. This is not someone that should be released back into society at all. At all. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, as I start off with, to me, this is a death penalty case, certainly life in prison. Right off the bat, it's only 23 years. Um, good time credits. You have super majority, Republican majorities, Republican governor. That should be taken care of. You should have Nikki's law with good time credits. But, of course, that's not even on the table. So you go for something very, very modest that, in my mind, I would would have thought it was already baked in and should be automatic, but it wasn't. Could you describe what you just did successfully get signed into law 
And could you explain how much help you had with that in, in terms of the advocacy? Oh, goodness. Well, I have to say a lot of people were involved in making this happen, mm-hmm. not just myself. I did testify in favor of a lifetime order of protection bill. But, um, you know, I had gone to Nashville News 4 with my concerns, you know, about these letters and nothing was happening. I had hired an attorney and because I wanted to be taken seriously. I didn't want to be ignored again. Um, like the prosecutor didn't do anything to help me after the first two letters. I didn't want to deal with that again. I wanted to be taken seriously. So I hired an attorney to try and present this, you know, this is happening to her. This guy is sending her these letters. He's stalking and harassing her from prison. And, um, Myself and my attorney contacted all of these bureaucrats to let them know, the, the prison warden, the U.S. Postal Inspector's Office, Tennessee Department of Correction, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office. Everyone was notified, and still nothing was really happening. Um, none of his early release credits, good behavior credits, were being revoked, um, even though we sent proof of the letters. Uh no charges were being brought, and it were it was like months and months just went on. And I'm thinking, what does a victim have to do to get the right thing done? Like, I literally hired an attorney to help me, and nobody's taking me seriously. And finally, I just got desperate. And I went to the media, and I just said, look, I need your help. I, I've got to get this guy charged. Like, something's got to happen. So they helped. Like, they just sat down, interviewed me, and... um I think the teaser for my interview ran and I got a phone call from the U S attorney's office. They mm-hmm. have the case. They're going to prosecute him, And so it worked. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe they were just extremely backlogged because of COVID, but you know, to a victim, you're freaking out thinking I'm running out of time because I sure. was dealing with statute of limitations oh, because I didn't wow. know about the letters for a while. And I'm thinking, I'm going to miss the window here to do anything because these people aren't hopping on this. I'm dealing with statute of, so you can understand where I'm freaking out. Sure. I mean, I mean, um, that's 2027 is not, you know, everyone's like, Oh, draconian sentences. Well, for a murderer, I mean, again, I mean, the, the, the view that our country was founded upon is that it should result in the death penalty and not 20 years later, by the way, a couple weeks later, they held the trial. They had maybe an appeal and that was it. Um, nowadays, you know, you can't even get life and, and 19 and a half years. Again, the guy will certainly be, um, young and feisty enough to keep his stuff going. Um, so you had to, you know, just fight even to get this. I am actually shocked. I didn't even know this, that until this law is passed and in the States that don't have it, if you have, you could have a rapist that serves time and all too often doesn't get life and gets out, um, sometimes pretty quickly you don't even have an automatic lifetime protection for that individual victim. Um, probably right. in most states you don't, right? Yeah, there's a few states that have lifetime order of protection, but but not a lot. Um, wow. And, you know, I, I found out through this um, that Tennessee did not have a lifetime order of protection. And I thought, you know, what good is a one-year order of protection well, what good is that going to do me when this guy is obsessed like this and and he's doing this again and again, year after year after year. Uh, and when he gets out, I'm going to have to go file. I, you have to renew it every year. So that means you've got to go to court and face this monster every year. No, no, that's not okay. That, that's just re-victimizing the, the victim who's yeah. already been through so much. And I, I was like, something's got to change. So, and what about uh, what about the plethora of these? There, there's tons of women's organizations around with a lot of money. Were they were they helping you? Uh, no, I did this on my own. Really, I I worked with. Um, well, I had worked at the Tennessee Legislature as a staffer for years, and mm. I knew Representative William Lambert, um, Republican, and 
he's actually the leader. Um, but I've known him since he was a freshman member. It's so funny. I was telling him, I said, Oh my gosh, I met you like nine years ago when you were a brand new freshman member. And now he's the leader. It's amazing how things change. And he's a great person. He is very much in support of victims' rights. And he really stood up. He listened to me. Well, I'm going to be getting on his case because <laughs> there's a lot more there's a lot more work to be done with that super majority that they have. There's a lot they can do. Obviously, the good time credits, um, you know, and, and, and then for our listeners, I, I, I got in touch with you through Thomas Massey. You also worked for uh, Congressman Massey, one of the best congressmen ever. Um, you are the direct, executive director of his Second Amendment caucus. He runs the Second Amendment caucus there. Um, and again, now you work with John Lott. Um the other big thing, obviously, as we mentioned, you know, we're we're talking about you scrambling to try to do anything you can to elongate the time he's off the streets. Um, so now you are going for federal stalking charges to try to, you know, get a few more years on the clock, get him behind federal bars. But I want to go back to the trial. Um, what struck me about your case is something that I didn't really realize until about two, three years ago. Um, you know, I, I often focused on how we're under-sentencing people and um, under-convicting them because they plead down in the evidentiary standards. But then I started seeing another trend in criminal justice where I would see a case, and, and this literally just happened, Nikki, this morning. Kevin Lewis, a terrific reporter from the local ABC here in Montgomery County, Maryland, southern part of Maryland, um, is this illegal alien from El Salvador that committed a horrific rape, allegedly, of a 15-year-old. Now, you know, a guy like that, you know, 15, it was horrible, horrible. The police report is insane. And I look at the thing, and, like, he's charged with second-degree rape, and he was let out on 10,000 bail, a guy like that. And over and over again, I see that with murder, rape, and assault— second degree, third degree. And when I was younger, I would think third degree, man, I don't know, like you, you you look at the guy the wrong way or something. But then you go back and you see it and it's like, whoa, in my mind, like that's a first degree, whether in terms of the technical definition, certainly in terms of his threat severity. But if the technical charge and certainly conviction is only second degree, even in a better state, like Tennessee, the time goes down exponentially. Here it's 23 years and then the good time credits. States like New York, it could easily be 10 years for a second-degree murder. But talk a little bit about the judge and the prosecutor and how this started. You know, I read your case, and it's like the guy said to you, you need to leave your husband. He had this planned. He went and staked out other places that he thought you usually sing at that night or whatever, and then he came in there and shot nobody but your husband. It wasn't like you get into a bar fight, kind of like, you know, passion of the moment, the heat of the moment. That, to me, that's like second degree. This is first degree. Should have easily been life. How in the world in the state of Tennessee was this second degree? You know, I think, okay, so it was a bench trial, just a judge. And the judge was um, a liberal judge um, by the name of Seth Norman. Seth is now retired. He's well into his 80s, but he's left me with a real dangerous mess to deal with. Um, and the prosecutor, <clears throat> uh, his name was Dan Ham, and this was in Davidson County, of course, Nashville, Tennessee. But, you know, I think the judge put a lot of weight on the defense mental health expert. Oh, I believe her name was Dr. Kimberly Brown. And she testified that, of course, you know, he got these delusions. But she also said that she felt like he was not capable of premeditation because of his delusions. And then the prosecution, their mental health expert said, yeah, Dr. Kimberly Brown, you're over." stepping the boundaries here that's allowed in the courtroom. You're not really allowed to, you can't say that. Um, you can't say someone's not capable of premeditation. You have to just look at all of the facts and they kind of left it up to the judge to decide what he wanted to believe. But, but don't the, the facts judge... show it was all premeditation? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I learned later from acquaintances and during the murder trial that my stalker actually went to downtown Nashville first looking for us. He went in several karaoke bars and he waited around in those places. He ordered a beer at each place. And when he couldn't find us, he asked where we were and for direction. And when he left, the bar staff noticed that his beer was still completely full. So he was hunting us down. And, you know, Johnny's sports bar where the murder took place, that was a good 30-minute drive from downtown Nashville where he normally went for karaoke nights. And, um, you know, Ben and I were running our mobile karaoke business out of this restaurant, and I'd never seen him there before. I wanted nothing to do with him. Ben had already asked him to leave me alone about a month prior, and I'm thinking, what's he doing here? And that's when it hit me. This this guy is stalking me. And um, and the rope and knife in, I, the, in the in his trunk that he just had yeah. for good measure. Uh, I think his defense attorney said something like, "Oh, those items were in his truck because the hotel he was staying at wouldn't allow them to stay in the room." So he put him in his car because he knew it would be wrong to leave him in his room. Well, if he knew it would be wrong to leave <laughs> some guns in his room, he knew it was wrong to murder someone. So, you know? so you're touching on something I didn't think about um, because what bothers me is, again, like, you know, in this show, we like to go through action items. So certainly we need to push for the lifetime orders of protection every state. We need to go after these good time credits, both. Um, in terms of the threshold for obtaining them and then the level of conviction that could even be eligible for them. But then, you know, I was going through the second degree stuff that there really is a need to either change, broaden first degree definitions or broaden the latitude for sentencing for second degree when appropriate to make it life. But you're bringing up something that is, man, is this old. It's eerie. I got to send you, Nikki, offline. Um, Reagan's... Uh, radio addresses it's eerie 40 years ago he was railing against this how so many people get off on on the mental health stuff and i think what you're describing here is very important because even in the cases where they don't straight get off because of an insanity plea which he didn't hear and you certainly see often but it does play in a, a role in knocking down the charge and therefore automatically through the front gate lessening the amount of time he's going to be behind bars. You know, one after another, a lot of fans always email me. They're like, you know, email back and forth because I talk about crime stories. So a lot of the audience sends me stories and I'll write about them and talk about them. Like, how in the world? And this guy was out on murder and he committed a murder. Well, how was he out on murder? And then you go back and you see he was only convicted on second or third degree, even though it was totally like a first degree type of charge. Um... And this is, you know, my question is, in a state like Tennessee, is there any recognition in that legislature full of Republicans that love to say they're conservative, law and order types? Is there any recognition that we are under convicting a lot of violent criminals? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I do what I can to try and educate people, but... You know, I'm not a constituent of all of these guys. Um, my state rep is, is very good mm -hmm. at, at listening. But unless you've got victims' rights groups uh, that are – unfortunately, victims' rights groups are not well-funded. No. Um, they're not as loud as the liberal uh, prisoner rights-type yep. groups. Um, They've disappeared. You know, those groups are – those prisoner rights groups are very well funded. They're very loud. Um, they, they, they had five staffers. There were five staffers assigned to shadow box me, whatever I would write. I mean, they had they had rebuttals, and literally, I'm the only guy with a byline on the web that that advocates for victims and that says we have an under incarceration problem. I mean, you know this, even on the right. I mean, even some conservatives are bought into this, and. That's what concerns me when I saw your story. I was like, why do you have to do this alone? I mean, and, and even the protective order, 
which is that's usually the type of thing that the left will kind of rally behind because it it it, it avoids having to get tougher on sentencing, which is really what we need to do, and the good time credits and the way we convict and all this stuff. This is just okay. Just give the one person the lifetime protective order. doesn't keep him in, in, in prison. And even that, it's not like there was, you know, a groundswell of support. I mean, from, from advocacy at, like, NGOs, right? I was the sole witness to testify in favor Jeez. of the lifetime order of protection, um, and you know, it, it passed. I'm, I'm glad it passed unanimously. No one voted against it. Everyone voted for it, Democrats and Republicans. And, um, you know, I, I realize that it's, it's only a piece of paper. I think a lot of people, you know, uh, think, oh, well, it's a waste of time. It's a piece of paper. Somebody that's really evil, they're not going to pay any attention to it. And I understand that. You know, it is a piece of paper. Um, but it's very good to have on record. And I need people to use their critical thinking skills here just for a moment. Just, you know, humor me. Um, God forbid a victim have to one day legally defend themselves from that offender. Um, you hope that never has to happen, but God forbid if it does, that piece of paper on record, I would think would be a very, very powerful defense. And I think that's important for good people, law-abiding people, victims of horrible crimes because it is very likely that a very violent offender would recidivate and that victim needs to be able to protect themselves and it's important to have on record De- definitely and and look you know obviously a guy could strike out from zero to 100 right away and go on and try to kill someone but I think more often there is some sort of contact and stalking, and they so this way you at least have him tagged from day one. That if if there would be even one contact, that would be grounds for prosecution, and he'd be thrown in jail. Sure. Now there's another issue that you then have to deal with, with which is how serious the prosecution, depending on where it is, takes it, and you know the bail issue. And this is something I think also needs separate reform that. You know, they have these cases, particularly with estranged boyfriends and husbands that do stalking and, um, you know, they'll they'll be arrested, but they'll be released the next day and they don't fear it anymore. Um, and, you know, th- this is all part of a multi-pronged approach we need. We're, we're pretty much out of time, Nikki, and we're so, still so much on the table. But I just want to, you know, see if you could talk a little bit about the human aspect of this. Um you know, when you have a a young widow like yourself at the time, very young widow, um, just something so unimaginable, just, you know, you come into the restaurant to sing with him, do your karaoke business like you always did one night, and you leave it at the end of the night without him, and it happens all in front of you. The system in general, um, the, the prosecutor's office, the judge, the whole experience. So you now have, um, and I've been up against them, uh, just an endless array of people to hold the hand of criminals. How easy or hard was it to navigate this whole system to get justice? Did you feel like, you know, the prosecutors and people like that were really sympathetic to you and, and really had a burning passion to get justice for you? No. No, I did not feel like they had a burning passion to get justice for me. No, I think... There, I think they were, I'll just be honest, lazy. There were so many other charges that could have been brought against him as well. All of the uh, gun control laws, he violated them. He, he was carrying <laughs> without a permit, didn't get charged for that. Brought a gun into a gun-free zone, didn't get charged for that. Using a gun in the commission of a dangerous felony, didn't get charged for that. There were so many charges that were not put on the table that could have been. And, you know, that's extra prison time. And that matters to victims because every year that he remains locked up is another year that I don't have to look over my shoulder worried that he's there. And they had no regard for 
charging on on those crimes. Okay, you get the second degree. That's one problem. But at least you could have latched on other charges. But I will tell you, Nikki, knowing the prosecutor, and again, mind you, this is Nashville, which has gotten very liberal over the years, but it's not New York City or San Francisco. And this is still happening, even on the prosecution side, much less the the judges. I would tell you, Nikki, he, just guessing, he probably thought 23 years was a tremendous amount. I mean, these people, and that's what I wanted to close with, just your take again on the human account. Uh, like never before in my lifetime, there's now a trend in all these states to let out people over 55, 60 years old who committed murder. And what the way they do this is like, yeah, the guy's been sitting in there for a while. Look at him. He's got diabetes, kind of bad shape. And then you read into these stories, and it's like, oh, my God. They, they did the most horrific things, sometimes a rape and a murder at the same time. And just the worst people. But, you know, the the the, the girl that, that the guy dealt, you know, strangled, well, she remains 17 forever in the grave. So, you know, no one ever sees her story to be sympathetic about it. You forget who it even was. It's two generations ago. Whereas this guy, you know, you feel bad for him. You know, as going through this, uh, what, it's been about 12 years. Does the pain ever get better? Um, I wouldn't say it gets better. It just changes, if that makes It becomes a new kind of normal and you learn to, or at least I've learned to use, you know, all of that fear and anxiety and depression and anger. I've turned it into action to try and, and not only help myself, but help other victims out there. Um, because there, there's a real need for improvement in laws um, to help protect society and, and protect, especially those who have already been through so much. I, you know, I don't want to see other people become victims. This is, what is it? They say that you're a, me- you're a member of the club that nobody wants to be a member of. Like, I don't want anybody to be in this club mm. of, you know, victims of violence. It, it's not, it's not pleasant. And, um, we should avoid that, we should avoid people being put into those situations. But I would just like to say this, you know, Ben was a very, very um, kind, thoughtful person. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to just tell you real quick about Ben. Um, he was actually a, a volunteer, a mentor with the Big Brothers, Big Sisters organization. And the time of his murder, he was mentoring a little boy by the name of Trent, whose father was in prison. Ben would take him to the movies, putt-putt golf, go-kart, you know, bowling, arcade. Trent would come over to our house, and I would cook him dinner. Um, Ben would take him out on the four-wheeler. We owned some land, and um, he was just a precious little boy who just needed, you know, a positive male figure in his life because his daddy was in prison and Ben was that person for him. And, um, Trent's mother told me that Trent came, uh, screaming and crying into her room bedroom because he saw on the news where Ben had been murdered and she had to have, uh, Trent taken in for some counseling. It was very hard on him, Mm. but Ben was a wonderful person that was trying to do good in the world. And I, I just, I want people to know that, you know, it's awful that good people are taken from us. And then, you know, these evil people are the ones that, you know, are still living. They get a second chance at life. Second chances. And, and I always say they're the ones that are pro the death penalty. They're pro the death penalty for victims. I mean, you loosen the deterrent Nashville, 114 murders last year, and we're outpacing that, by the way, this year. Um, It's going to be likely a new record, and you're going to have more victims as a result of... And unlike in your case, although I think your case is going to create another one of them because he's going to be let out early, and that's what's with all these people. They have priors, and they don't serve enough time, and so often it should be life. We should have legitimately three strikes, and you're out, and we really don't in any state, not legitimately. 
Um, and they they go on most of them to most of them are the murderers, and we just don't hear about them. We don't. I'm I'm glad you spoke about your husband because you know you, we only hear about these people. I see Kim Kardashian and Van Jones going around with all these people. They're the greatest people alive, and you just you never hear about any of the victims. Uh, it, it it's truly shocking how. All these victim rights groups, when I in, in the in the '90s, it's they don't exist anymore, and it's all the criminal rights. But look, I mean, Nikki, I'd love to work with you in in Tennessee, um, folks. Sign up at ConAction.network. If you're from Tennessee, I need a Tennessee leader. We have a lot of people signed up. We need to formulate the group. Also in Alabama, we we are going to have a faculty training. I need you guys to um, sign up for that as well. We do have team leaders there. Uh, it's these type of states. If we're not going to have law and order in these states, we certainly aren't going to get it, you know, in the Northeast where I'm from. And it's it's really there's a lot of room to grow. And what's so tragic is there are so many stories out there like this of victims that you know there's nobody to help them. You know, there's probably five hundred thousand bills in the states named after George Floyd, proposed, and similar people like that. But you're never going to have. Um, for this, you know, I next week I'm going to talk about Michelle Cummings, the um, mom who dropped her son off for the induction date at the Naval Academy here in Annapolis, and she was killed by a stray bullet. Um, and it turns out that the perpetrator had four gun felonies, convictions, and two charges recently was let out to home confinement. That's criminal justice reform cut off his ankle bracelet two months prior, but they couldn't catch him in two months. And he is the one arrested now. Um, and she happens to be black and raised her children properly and had a very proud moment there. Um, Michelle Cummings, 57 years old. No one will ever hear of her, but we'll hear of Rayshard Brooks and that other guy that, you know, in, in, in Minnesota. I, I mean, I don't know, Nikki, just to close it off, where could people go to, maybe help in your cause? Do you have any website or just, you know, first of all, obviously people can get your book on Amazon stocked and defenseless. Make sure you pick that up where books are sold. What else could people do to help? Um, you can definitely check out um, crimeresearch.org. And then my website is stockedanddefenseless.com. And, uh, you know, just get active you know, be involved, talk with your lawmakers, email them, call them, let them know what your concerns are. Um, stay engaged in what's going on in our criminal justice system and, and speak your truth, you know, speak up, use your voice to help make change. Exactly. And, and, and we plan to do that in every red state legislature. Um, we're going to come up with a list of about 10 things that need to be done in all these states, um, again, just in Texas, just came across the wire. Um, there was in Lubbock County, a SWAT team leader was killed. A couple more were shot. The individual was just released on bail multiple times. Very, very low bail. Same problem, same thing everywhere. Uh, we have an under-incarceration problem on net. We have a system that is too deferential to criminals doesn't help victims. The standoff at the border is heating up between Texas Governor Greg Abbott and the federal government. Politicians will never let a crisis go to waste. We have been invaded. The crisis is being used by Republicans as a photo op by the Democrats to expand their voting base. More than 85% of everybody reaching the border is coming in. That's the definition of an open border. Just down the road. You can get in no problem, no Humvees, no armed guards. What people don't realize is there's a way around everything. The Blaze Originals team traveled to the Texas border, ground zero of the most controversial news story of 2024. With some experts estimating over 4 million border crossings in 2023 alone, we embedded with the Take Our Border Back convoy to investigate. What if the entire narrative you thought you knew was a lie? Go watch the real story of Texas versus the feds and how the elites use the border crisis against us by visiting realbordercrisis.com and use code TEXAS for $30 off an annual subscription to Blaze TV. We cannot wait around for the movement to come. We need to create it. We need to go on offense, not just be defensive about it. Folks, 
I hope Nikki's story really grabs your heart and gives you this focus. I know I get a lot of emails from victims of crime and families, and we got to do something. It is my dream to create an NGO. Um, I do have a friend working on something. Nikki, thanks so much for sharing your story. Thanks for fighting for the Second Amendment, for fighting for victims of crime. And may God, you know, heal your pain and uh, bless you and your family. All right. Thank you so much. You take care. Take care. And folks, we are out of time. Till next week, same time, same place. We'll be back Monday. God bless you all. And thank you for listening.